0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're concluding our series, The Ministry of Our Lord, with a message entitled Son of David, Son of God. So turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 to 34, as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: To this very day, There's still so many different versions of who people think that Jesus was. In Israel, for example, there has now been for some time a Jewish project to reclaim Jesus as a Pharisee who was seeking to reform what had become a very corrupt Pharisaic order. And so perhaps according to that view, Jesus is a teacher of the law who seeks to clarify the law or humanize the law, make it more concerned with the oppressed and the marginalized. You know, for many so-called liberal Christians, Jesus has been a great social reformer and Sermon on the Mount is his manifesto of how society might be reordered. Some even argue that he was a forerunner to the socialist movement, someone who wanted to reconstruct society to become more equitable, everything from, you know, pay structure to social mobility. Again, you hear him as the hero for the marginalized. To some of the cults, Jesus is the first creation God made and is, therefore, either the greatest of the angels or even a greater being than the angels, some kind of a celestial being. Among Muslims, Jesus is thought of merely as a man and yet chosen by God as a great prophet, a prophet who will appear again at the end of history and then take his place as one who is inferior to Muhammad. Furthermore, Muslims deny that Jesus died on a cross. I mean, given all the different views of Jesus, one has to wonder whether we're actually talking about the same person at all. Just to be clear, this is not just a problem in our day. It was a problem from the very beginning. Listen to what Paul says to the real confusion that had developed among the Corinthian Christians. And here I'm reading 2 Corinthians 11 verse 4. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, than the one we proclaim or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. In other words, you Corinthian Christians are not taking care to challenge a reinterpretation of Jesus that departs from the real Jesus of history. You're not defending who he truly was. Or consider what John says in Second John verse 7. For many deceivers have gone into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. You know, in the Greek world, there were philosophies that were quite popular and philosophies that held that physical reality, or even human flesh, that was a lower level or a lower form of existence, and the ideal was what they called pure spirit, which is the highest form of existence. And so the idea that Jesus came in the flesh, well, that would mean for the Greek mind that he was a lower form of existence. And so the drive was underway to reinvent Jesus and make him to be something that was compatible with some forms of Greek thinking. Now, the reason I've begun with this is because this discussion leads very naturally into the last section of Matthew chapter 20. You know, after this section, we will have in Matthew 21, Jesus going to Jerusalem and all the events of the last week of Jesus' life, leading to his crucifixion, and then ultimately to his resurrection. But this last section in our chapter tells us a great deal about the events that inevitably led to the storm of hatred and unbridled animosity towards him that awaited him in Jerusalem. It also tells us a great deal about the identity of the real Jesus. So let's read our text, Matthew 20, 29-34. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Now, as we examine this text, I need full disclosure. Both Mark and Luke also describe this very same event, except that in Mark and Luke, it's not two blind men, it's only one. And in Mark, he actually has a name. His name is Bartimaeus. Well, then what accounts for Mark and Luke only mentioning one and Matthew insisting there were two? Well, for one, we do know that Matthew frequently has two, where Mark and Luke only mention one. Remember the demoniac who had the legion of demons. You know, the demons entered into the pigs and rushed over the steep bank and were drowned. Matthew mentions two demoniacs, and Mark and Luke only mention one. Or go ahead to Palm Sunday when Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Well, both Mark and Luke mentioned the donkey, but in Matthew, well, let me read it to you. Matthew 21, verse 2. He said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. In Matthew's account, Jesus is riding on the colt, and the mother of the colt is right there to calm it during the noisy entrance into Jerusalem. Again, not one donkey, two. And so what accounts for this? See, I think the answer is actually quite easy to come by. None of the gospel writers mentioned everything that had happened during the ministry of Jesus. Remember what John said about all of that. In John 21, 25, John writes, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. It's not as if the four gospel accounts are a complete account of everything that Jesus did. It should be obvious to us when we read it. The four gospel accounts are short. It can't possibly report everything that happened. And so it seems that both in Mark and Luke, you know, they most often focus on one main player, you know, the lead demoniac, the more pronounced and vocal of the blind men, and and the one donkey that Jesus actually rode without focusing on all the other stuff that was going on. I mean, think of it like a television camera. It captures, you know, the action in front of its lens, not everything that's going on. Well, then, if that's the case, why does Matthew expand the account? I mean, why does he include a second blind man who's also healed? Well, I can't say with certainty, but it would seem to me that Matthew wants us to understand that the miracles of Jesus really did, in some cases, affect more than one main player in the drama. I mean, you might wonder why I spend so much time on, you know, what seems to be a very small detail. Well, I do it because I'm constantly aware that The statements of the critics are those that argue that the accounts of the gospel are always conflicting and contradictory accounts. But they're anything but that. Imagine you're interviewing three witnesses to an event, and one of them includes a detail the other two didn't mention. Do you then conclude that because this detail is added, it's got to be a contradiction? Well, hardly. But such is the case with a great many liberal scholars who seek to use any and every opportunity to try to discredit the biblical account. So please forgive me. I I thought we needed to clarify that matter. Nonetheless, Matthew is telling us of the time that Jesus left Jericho, and the crowd realizing he's on the way to Jerusalem is now following him. And the excitement is building, and the expectation that he's the long-awaited Jewish Messiah has never been greater than right now. You know, in the past, when this kind of passion was felt in the crowd, Jesus deliberately slowed the enthusiasm down. I mean, you might want to go back to Matthew 16, verse 20. I and mean, there Peter has just declared, look, I know who you are. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You're the great and long expected Messiah. And in response, we read, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. In other words, keep it secret. Now go forward to Matthew 17, verse 9. Jesus is coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. And Matthew tells us, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. See, don't talk openly about these things. That is, not until later. But truthfully, we know these secrets have been building for some time. You might want to go all the way back to close to the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, Mark 3, 9 to 12. We read, And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. That was a pattern tell no one. Throughout his ministry Jesus has been very guarded about who should know whether or not he was the Messiah or the Son of God. And that's what makes the passage we've just read in Matthew 20 so very, very remarkable. Suddenly it would seem the secret is gone. He's not hiding it anymore. Why now?
0: A donor recently wrote, I decided to give because your ministry is one that can be trusted when it comes to teaching the Bible. It's really that simple. Well, this past month as a ministry, we placed an emphasis upon the critical importance of identifying Bible teaching you can trust. Well, this month, our hope is to reinforce the importance of not only identifying trustworthy teaching, but the importance of sharing those life-changing truths with others. This month, we placed an emphasis on the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 11 for the purpose of restating our commitment to faithfully obeying the biblical charge to serve with all of our hearts and to teach the Bible with fervor. Our prayer is that you will join us in this effort. Your gifts, your prayers are critical in this day and for this purpose. To offer a gift today or to find out about our new initiative, the 1119 Fellowship, visit backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425.
1: Let me draw your attention to two very telling moments that relate to the death of Jesus. The first comes to us from John 10, 31 to 33. And that passage says, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. Look, if you're a polytheist or pantheist, the claim to be a God is hardly surprising. You know, the world of Jesus' day was filled with temples that were a part of the imperial cult of emperor worship. I mean, no sooner was an emperor from Rome dead than he was proclaimed a god and a temple was built. And as an act of loyalty to the emperor, all the citizens of Rome were commanded to pour out libations as an act of loyalty to the empire. And if you wouldn't proclaim Caesar to be both Lord and God, well then, clearly you're a traitor. And as we know, as the Christian movement began to grow, that became a very clear problem. When Christians said, no, Jesus alone is Lord, that statement was a politically charged statement. But Rome offered the Jews an exception. That's because the Jews were fiercely monotheistic. They would have gone to war at the cost of everyone's life if they had been called upon to call Caesar Lord and God. They're ready to stake their lives on this matter and the lives of their children and everyone else in their culture on the truth that there was but one God. And I say all that to help shed light on how important it was that no one ever be given a hearing who claims equality with God. I mean, to say such a thing was the greatest evil of all. Okay, that's the explanation for that vitriolic response that we find in the Gospel of John. So let's now go to Mark's Gospel and consider a moment that comes from the trial of Jesus. It's found in Mark 14, 61 to 64. We read, again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And that's why they condemned Jesus to death. I mean, make no mistake about it. You know, in Daniel chapter 7, there's a very famous and and perhaps hard to understand passage. We're told there that one like a son of man approaches the ancient of days. The ancient of days gives the son of man dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all the people's nations and languages should serve this son of man, and that the dominion of the son of man would never pass away. And that's what Jesus is referring to when he spoke with the Jewish Sanhedrin during his trial. He said, you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, meaning I am that Son of Man that you read about in the book of Daniel. And the chief priest knew that Jesus was claiming equality with the Father. That's why he tore his garments. It was a show of fury, and he proclaimed, that man deserves to die. And that's why the Sanhedrin condemned Jesus to death. And listen, all that Jesus would have had to do is to say, no, 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 you you misunderstand me. I'm not claiming to be God. You've got it all wrong. But he doesn't say that, does he? Indeed, he goes to the cross refusing to renounce that claim. And that explains why earlier on in Jesus' ministry, he continued to insist on these secrets. Don't tell anyone. Keep this matter close to your vest. It's very important not to go around saying these things yet, because if they get said now, I'll never be able to carry on my ministry. And that brings us back now to this incident in Jericho, just before Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. Two blind men are sitting by the roadside, just where Jesus is expected to leave the town and to head to Jerusalem for the Passover. The crowd is growing in size, and the whispers are now being heard everywhere. We think he's the Messiah. We think he's the son of David. There's a very famous psalm. It's Psalm 2. The psalm begins with the kings of the earth saying that they wish to overthrow the rule of the Lord and his Messiah or his anointed king, his Christ. And then we have a picture of the Lord seated on a throne of heaven, laughing at the raging of the nations because God knows he needs merely to speak a word and the nations will be destroyed. And then the great God of heaven says to his Messiah, You, Messiah, you are my son. You're the son of God, and I want you to ask of me, and I will give you the nations for an inheritance. Now, keep that in mind and go back to the blind men sitting by the road. Jesus is fixing to go to Jerusalem at Passover at the very time in which faithful Jews believed that the Messiah would one day appear. Jesus has been preaching and doing extraordinary miracles, and the expectation is now wide open. This is the Messiah. And then, sitting beside the roadside at the outskirts of Jericho, these two men, and they're shouting three phrases. The first, Lord. What do they mean by that? Well, we can't say with absolute certainty, but they could have meant that this is a divine title. Well, you want to keep that in mind. And then they cry, Son of David. Now, that isn't obscure at all. That's Messiah. You're the one destined to rule the nations. You're the exalted Son of Man who receives all nations as your heritage. You're Israel's rightful king, and you're also the rightful ruler of humanity. We are blind, but we know who you are. And then the third phrase, have mercy upon us. We're blind. Don't just subdue the nations. Subdue sickness and disease and death subdue our blindness." And clearly the entire crowd is hearing this shouting. Two blind men referring to Jesus as son of David and Messiah. And as we've seen in the past, Jesus has told everyone to keep that kind of talk down. And then amazingly, the crowd itself seems to do Jesus' work for him. I mean, they say to the blind men, pipe down, stop shouting, be quiet. That seems like a very good idea. I mean, if you keep that kind of talk up in front of the excited crowd that are expecting Jesus to go to Jerusalem at Passover, you're going to create a social revolution. See, if Jesus had been wanting to quell this enthusiasm at this point, all he would have had to do is pass these two men by. The incident would have died down at that very moment. But notice he does nothing of the kind. He stops right in front of the men, and with everyone watching, he addresses the blind men who have called him the Messiah. Mark, in his account, says that Jesus actually stopped on the road and demanded that the blind men be brought to him. So that would mean that by now, Jesus has engaged the entire crowd. Everyone's become involved. Mark also says that some in the crowd said to the men, cheer up, he's calling for you. And now Jesus speaks to these two men, what do you want me to do? And they say, we want to see. And Matthew simply says that in pity, Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight. But Mark adds that Jesus said, "'Your faith has made you well.'" And that must mean that in the context of this event, the faith that Jesus is talking about is not only that he's able to make them see, but also the faith that he is the Messiah, the son of David, this faith, this confidence that I have come into the world to usher a new era, the era of the kingdom of the Messiah, that faith is now rewarded in these two blind men. Receive your sight, and then in the full sight of the entire crowd, the two men are instantly healed. And then let's go to what John in John's gospel tells us. He says that from there, Jesus went to Bethany, where he had previously raised Lazarus from the dead. And he had a banquet in the town, and everybody showed up. See, I've been trying to paint a picture that at this point in time, the messianic secret, that idea that tell no one who I am, that's no longer going to be a secret. Jesus has now made the decision that he will hide his identity no more. And with this, the enthusiasm in the crowd is now reaching a fervor that by the time we come upon the scene of Jesus riding with a donkey into Jerusalem, You know, a stunningly large crowd shows up. They're waving palm branches, and they're screaming at the top of their lungs, Hosanna to the Son of David. Jesus' true identity has now stepped from behind the shadows, and it's been brought to the whole world. That brings me back to the question of the true identity of Jesus. Remember, we talked about everything from him being a social reformer to a prophet, But the real Jesus, the one who actually existed, is the Son of God, destined to rule the world. And if that weren't true, well, we can say with objective certainty that we would never have heard of Jesus today. Social reformers come and go, prophets come and go, but the Son of God, well, that makes the whole world sit up and pay attention. In the end, there's but one true option, which leaves the human race with but one of two legitimate choices. We either fall at His feet and call Him Lord and God, or we rebel against
0: Him when He comes to rule the nations. John, thanks so much for a great series in the book of Matthew. But let me conclude with this question. You know, we've done a pretty good job in our generation of overlooking the authentic Jesus of the Bible and and replacing Him with something like the Jesus of our comfort. What do you think's brought us to that point, and how do we get back on track?
1: Well, I think it was Kelvin that said that the, that the human heart is an idol factory. I mean, we can't help but We produce idols all the time. And so when we look at Jesus, whom we know as Savior and Lord, uh, and yet we sometimes uh, have to deal with some of the things that Jesus says, we, we sometimes just close our eyes and pay attention to the kind of Jesus that we actually want. And so it's always appropriate for Bible teachers, pastors, and for all of us who read the scripture together, uh, those who teach in Bible study groups, Sunday school classes, to continue to force us back to see the
0: real Jesus of history and worship the one who truly existed. Fantastic series, John. Thank you so much. And remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Hi, this is Ben Lowell. You know what? We're missing you and the opportunities we've had in the past to get out and meet you face to face, share in times of worship and laughter and the study of God's Word. So enough is enough. We want to invite you to be part of Back to the Bible Canada's The Gathering, taking place Sunday, September 27th at 5 p.m. Pacific and 8 p.m. Eastern. Join us on the Back to the Bible Canada Facebook page and enjoy a time together with Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, special musical guests, including friends Shane and Angela Weeb, and many more to be announced in the days ahead. So mark it on your calendar for this national ministry event, The Gathering. Learn more by visiting the Back to the Bible Canada Facebook page, visit backtothebible.ca slash events, or just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. Remember, join us for The Gathering.